going to get started tonight. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus 11.41. Leviticus 11.41. Can't believe we got 40 verses covered last week, but that's what we did. And uh, we're going to be chomping it up in bits too. But chapter 12 is an exciting chapter because we're going to slow down a little bit and uh, take a look at this uh, thing called circumcision. Uh, isn't it exciting, the stuff that God puts in the middle of the Bible, I mean, we have bodily discharges coming up. We've got uh, all kinds of stuff. Leviticus 18 is one of those made for Sunday morning chapters, but we're not going to do it on a Sunday morning. But anyway, let's go ahead and take just a moment for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you just most of all for sending your Son that he might take our place on a cross so that by simple faith in him we might have eternity with you. What an amazing plan, Father. We thank you for it. And Father, we thank you that we can know that we have eternal life because of what you did and not because of what we did. So, Father, I pray that indeed that you'll continue to bless us, that you'll nourish our souls with this spiritual food tonight so we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now, in Leviticus 11, uh, we've been seeing the clean and unclean fish, the unclean birds, the clean and unclean insects. Of course, most insects we all consider unclean at any point in history. Uh, the penalty for uncleanness. Um, how to extend it on out. Um, dead animals, don't touch them. Pretty, pretty clear. And now verse 41 to 45 is no swarming things. Now see, some commands are a lot easier to follow than other commands. <laughs> okay. I'm sure that the Jews wandering around the desert goes, oh, that's a roach. That's food. No, that's not, <laughs> not going to happen. Now, verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable. Shaket's the word we've seen before. Not mean, and in case we didn't understand, not to be eaten. Okay? Uh, literally, it shall not be eaten. It's stated in the form of a command. It's a thou shalt not, the way that it is uh, stated. Whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours, Whatever has many feet, so the centipedes are off limits. In respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Okay, some things are, like I say, readily obvious to us. Verse 43, do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them, so that you become unclean. Okay, that's straightforward, isn't it? That's nothing hard to understand about, about that. And then why? Look at where this verse comes in. Because we've seen this verse in the New Testament. And look at the context that it's pulled out of. Out of the context of swarming things. And he says, For I am the Lord your God, Yahweh Eloheikim. Uh, Hakim on the end of it is your. It's plural. You all's Elohim. So that's the way it looks like in the, in the Hebrew. Yahweh Elohim. He says, I am the Lord your God. 
consecrate yourselves. Now, this is a hithpael perfect to the word kadash. Now, the kadash is a word we see many times, Q-A-D-A-S-H, but the key here is the hithpael. Because the hithpael is, is a common but uncommon stem in the Hebrew. It is the called the intensive reflexive stem. So when it says consecrate yourselves, it involves a volitional act, first of all. That's what makes it reflexive. And then it is intensive. So it is a hithpael. So you might remember the PL stem. Hithpael is, is an addition to the intensive stem and the PL stem. So and it says uh, consecrate yourselves, and it's the word kadash, therefore, and B, kadosh. Okay, the first one, kadash, is the verb. But kadosh is the noun. The noun is used 118 times. So we find that uh, these are common words. These are Hebrew 101 words. To set yourself apart, and then he explains it further. He says, and B, holy, kadosh, for I am kadosh. And it's actually kadosh ani. The word ani is I. It says, for holy am I. So it places it in that way for emphasis. That's uh, whenever the, uh, in, in any of the words, almost any of the words you find, the uh, pronoun is implied or a part of the word. There are pronouns that are separate and by themselves. And when you find them, it emphasizes things. It's just like uh, uh, Yahweh is, and the Greek ego I me, I myself am. It puts an emphasis on it. And he says, <clears throat> for holy am I, and you shall not make yourselves, and this is interesting, you shall not make your souls unclean. Nephish is the word that is used in here. You shall not make your souls unclean. So this has to do with not just touching or eating these things, but having the correct attitude about these things. Because if you say, boy, that, that cockroach looks good over there, I should eat it, then your mind is not where it needs to be. See, so he says, uh, you shall not make yourselves unclean. And he uses the word tame here. T A M E T A M E. Now, tame is a word that's best described as ceremonially unclean. Now, ceremonial uncle- ceremonial uncleanness is even brought into the New Testament, and it basically is saying that you have touched something, eaten something, come in contact with something. That renders you unclean to conduct any future rituals. So you have to stay away from them. We're to be careful about ceremonial uncleanness as regards the Lord's table before we partake of it. One of the New Testament things. And the ceremonial uncleanness comes about if you start thinking that that little piece of bread and that cup of juice is going to save your soul. You got the wrong attitude. It's a ceremonial uncleanness that that has come into your life. So it's it's important even in the New Testament. And here he's using these object lessons and saying, don't mess with any of these creatures because you're not going to be able to participate in any of the other things that we do, and that would include the feast, 
you know, if a feast was coming up, you certainly didn't want to be unclean and not get to, to participate in the feast. He says, <clears throat> You shall not make yourselves ceremonially unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am Yahweh, Ani. That's the pronoun. I myself, Yahweh. The word am is not really in there. Sometimes the verbs are actually expressed and sometimes they are omitted for effect. I, Yahweh. That's the way it actually comes out. And you can see the effect. It's a declaration. Personally, I, next, Yahweh. And there's no little connector word to be found in there. He says, who brought you up? Hiphil participle. Hiphil is, I caused you to go up. Allah is to come up out of uh, Egypt, from the land of Egypt, to be your Elohim. Thus you shall be holy. Now the word be here is hayah. Hayah is a word that means to become. To become something that you're, you're not. So thus you shall become holy. So it is a, to me, it's a very clear exhortation that they're to become something they're not. And that starts with faith, just like the faith of Abraham so that Abraham could become holy. And then there's, a, there's an experiential holiness that comes with it because God is not just holy by declaration. He is experientially holy by practice. So that's what we are to become. We are to be an imitator of God, Ephesians 5.1, and this is putting a little flesh on, on that particular uh, statement. He says, Thus you shall become Kedashim. And that's holy in the plural. So it is saying that there's more than one type of holiness. So if there are unbelievers in Israel, then what they need to realize is they need to take the first step of holiness, which is by faith after the pattern of Abraham, and then they need to live a holy life, which is obedience to these laws that the Lord's setting in front of them. Thus you shall become holy because I am Kadosh. I am holy. Now this is a reminder of the sovereignty of the Lord God Almighty. See, it's, it's not just his righteousness and justice that are in view about holiness. This is the fact that he has, as the king, the right and authority to make laws as to what's holy and what is not holy. So here's a very clear statement that he has laid out as laws, and it it's, points to his kingship, his sovereignty. Israel was called to be a holy nation. And this is Exodus 19. Now, if you think about Exodus 19, what's happened? The first few chapters, they were getting ready to come out of Egypt. Then finally, 10 through 14, they came out of Egypt. 15, Miriam leads them in this big song. And then he starts, he starts giving them instructions. And in Exodus 19, he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. See, Israel, the, the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. Okay? You do this, God does this. That's a conditional covenant. He says, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, look what he has called them to be. A kingdom of 
of priests. Not a specialized priesthood. He knew it was coming. But the whole group are supposed to be priests. And if they're not priests by office, they're supposed to be priests by function. Because a priest did three things, no matter the different kind of priesthood. The priest taught, the priest offered up sacrifices, and the priest led in worship. And even we, we do the same thing. We're all supposed to be teachers. To grow up enough, we can teach other people. That's what we're supposed to do. We're to offer up ourselves, the sacrifice of ourself, our body, a living, holy sacrifice. And we're supposed to be worshipful creatures. Songs, hymn, and spiritual songs. Holiness was modeled in the tabernacle. And if we track the word kadosh, we go back. You see up at Leviticus 6.16. And at all, because there's a whole bunch of descriptions about the word holy as they relate to the tabernacle, relate to the sacrifices. Holiness begins with faith after the pattern of Abraham. Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness is the word zedek. It's not the word kadosh that is found here. But it is the starting point. It is the starting point of holiness is to comply with God's righteousness. As displayed here and several times throughout Leviticus, there was a call not to just positional holiness, but experiential as well. And we're going to see that more in Leviticus as we go through it. So be ye holy, experience the holinesses as I am holy. So it's not just compliance in one regard. It's compliance everywhere. That's what he's calling us to do. Now experiential holiness is also to be lived out in the church. Now 1 Peter 1, 13, if you want to turn there with me quickly. Go ahead and turn 1 Peter 1, 13. Because we can see that Peter knew this verse. We can see that under the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter is quoting this and we're going to put it in the context that he uses it first peter 1 13 therefore gird your minds for action keep sober in spirit fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ that's that revelation in jesus christ is the rapture that he's talking about right there we're in the church age next great prophetic event is the rapture of the church. So fix your hope completely on that. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust that were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, because I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Knowing you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Because he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Notice this purification and cleansing and stuff like that that gets talked about in the New Testament. Where did it come from? came right out of the principles taught in the, in the Mosaic Law. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. That's the purity that we're supposed to, supposed to seek. For you have been born again, not a seed that's perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. And all flesh is like grass, all the glory is like the flower of grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord abides forever. He stole that out, out of Isaiah. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter opens this message up in this, this epistle with a quick review of the fact that we are called to be holy. Now, part of what we learned last Sunday about false teachers, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. In other words, a lot of the false teachers just condone any and every lifestyle. And they say that it is legitimate and it's okay and, you know, whatever. They use confession as a license to sin. That's false teaching. That's simply false teaching. Now, <clears throat> verse 46 is two summary verses. It says, this is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the edible creature and the creature that is not to be eaten. So we can go out and gather grasshoppers and crickets, and we can pickle them, I guess. Uh, I don't know if they ate them raw or if they had a process for preparation. I haven't seen a Jewish cooking manual that you know, how to prepare locusts and crickets. Anyway. This is the summary of the chapter. These two verses. This is kind of interesting because Hebrew usually gives you the summary first and then explains it. Here he kind of told us where he was going first and now he summarizes it. So it's it's not a hard fast rule of the way that they, they did it. And it's time to move on to another topic. So he summarized it. A clear break. Paragraph break. And now chapter 12. One of these exciting chapters. Now, I didn't bring any illustrations with me on this chapter. <laughs> At one time, it had got you locked up. Okay, I'm not sure what would happen. What would happen now? But it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "You know, last time He spoke, it was to Moses and Aaron. Okay, this time He said, Moses. Okay, Aaron's not there." And he says, speak, command. Okay, Moses, this is not for you to keep, not for you to hold back. Talk to the sons of Israel, saying, when a woman, this is a Isha. See, Ish, the man in the garden, Isha, the woman in the garden, simply a feminine. The A-H is the feminine ending of, of Ish. Gives birth and bears a male child. Now, gives birth is a word, yelad. I uh, about went half nuts on that back in seminary because yelad is a word translated beget. Have you got any idea how many begets there are 
in the Old Testament. It's in excess of 5,000. And so, being a crazy seminary student, I decided I would track those down. Because the, uh, the word Yalad, I'll go ahead and put it up here just so you can have fun and say our pastor can write in Hebrew, Y-A-L-A-D-H. And this word has some, it's been said that it is not necessarily a literal uh, father-son begetting. Okay, and so I set out to check that because I like to study chronology. And if it said that Adam begat Seth, I like to know it really was a direct child and not a grandson, great-grandson, or other, because that's what a lot of even conservatives say, that there are gaps in that genealogy, and they're trying to do that to extend the time because they can't get the flood of Noah in 2300 B.C. They want to put it in 10,000 B.C., so they got to have some holes in the genealogies. And so <clears throat> I set out to track all these things down and found out something quite interesting. When a man begets a child, and Adam begets Seth, it is in the hyphial stem, which is cause to beget. When a woman gives birth to a child, it's in the cal stem, which is the stem of reality. Okay? She actually does the begetting. The, the daddy is the cause of it. And the Hebrew is very precise in that regard. There's one place in Genesis 10 that it talks about a man begetting a, a child, not in the line of Messiah, by the way, and a cow stem is used, which tells me at that point that's not a literal father-son relationship. There can be some holes there, and indeed there, there probably is. But the line of Shem is where the line of Messiah is found, and this is outside of the line of Shem, but all the other ones very precise in what they say and how they how they say it. Now, <clears throat> it says, when a woman, Isha, gives birth and begets, Cal, stem used here, a male, uh, a male child. The male child is a zakar. Now, <clears throat> zakar is, it, wouldn't you expect Adam, for Adam, or Ish, for man, no, this is zakar, because this is a word that emphasizes the genitals that go with being a male, and a zakar has that particular emphasis. That which identifies a male is the genital structure. The difference between a male and a female. Okay, <clears throat> and gives birth to a male, then she shall be unclean. Tame, the word we saw a little earlier ceremonially unclean okay there's some things that needs to happen she needs to be able to get cleaned up and and taken care of and it says she shall be ceremonially unclean for seven days as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean now there are provisions later when a woman menstruates then there's a period of uncleanness etc okay and it says in verse 3, on the eighth day, the Shemini, interesting word, used 28 times, the flesh, the basar, literal flesh, of his foreskin, the orla, 
O-R-L-A-H, used 16 times. And uh, I'm sure probably all of us know the, the medical things that go along with it here. That a male is, is born with a foreskin that covers the end of his penis. Circumcision is the removal of that foreskin that covers the end of the penis. And so he says, on the eighth day, uh, his foreskin shall be circumcised, which is cut off. The Hebrew word is mul, M-U-L. It's a nifel. So it says it's got to be done by an outside force. Okay, <clears throat> and, it's a, and it's used, uh, the Greek word is peritomao, and it's a lot clearer. Uh, tomao means to cut, and peri means around. So cut around. I mean, it's just a very descriptive word. It's used 36 times in the Old Testament, 17 times in the New Testament. So it's a pretty common topic. Now, <clears throat> the eighth day is a picture of new beginnings. Okay? We're going to take a look at, um, I guess, the doctrine of circumcision tonight. So we can title that on the website and see if that draws any attention to it. <clears throat> it's often a picture of consecration. Or setting something apart. Saying something is different. Something is special. Exodus 22.30 is one of the first instructions about that. And it was a a time that was designed to set something apart. For a male child in Israel, it's a day of new beginnings. Because eight's a picture of new beginnings. That seven days, seventh day the Lord rested. Seven is a picture of completeness. And one of the most recognized numerical issues and and, uh, pictures you find anywhere in the scripture. And eight then starts it all over again. So eight is a picture of new beginnings. So it's a day of new beginnings and at that point that male child in Israel has been identified with Abraham. See, because it really wasn't the law of Moses that established circumcision. It was Abraham that established circumcision. Which Paul will tell people about in the New Testament because they said you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. See, the Pharisees had infiltrated the church and they were having this big argument and discussion over it. And so Paul says, that's not even where it started. You guys have got your theology messed up because you got the wrong starting point. Abraham was the first to be circumcised when he was 100 years old. Now I want to talk to Abraham about this. (laughs) Go ahead and turn to Genesis 17, verse 6 with me. Because, you know, Abraham is usually pretty compliant and obedient. (laughs) And and I'm almost positive he said, you want me to do what? (laughs) And the Lord's giving him instructions. And Abraham, you talk about a test. You know, this guy's 100 years old, and he's, he's faced with a real serious test because there weren't any priests to do it. Abraham got to do it to himself, which just sends chills all the way through my toes to even think about such a thing. So here's, here's Abraham. How he did it, I don't know. But that's what I'm saying. It'd be nice. When we sit down to eat with him at dinner, that's what probably going to be my first question. Abraham. Now, 17.6, he says, uh, Genesis 17, he says, I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. 
So here it is, part of the ratification of the the innumerable descendants that he is supposed to have. Okay, the the kings that are going to come from. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, your seed, singular, after you. Paul makes a big deal out of that in Galatians 3. He didn't say to seeds in the plural. He said to seed, referring to Christ. That's where the that's where the covenant is going to be made. <clears throat> and your descendants seed after you throughout your generation for an everlasting covenant. The contract to be God to you and your seed after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So here's the Abrahamic covenant, and here we see the sexual prosperity end of it and the real estate portion of it. <clears throat> he says, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their Elohim. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and all your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. <clears throat> Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now keep in mind, that's not always a visible sign. Okay, but this is a sign between me and you. So it's real personal. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And an uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. They've broken my covenant. Okay? This is the Abrahamic covenant that he is that he is making. And he's making it with Isaac and Jacob and all the descendants after it. And he says, This is the sign. Now, this is something that is going to be a teaching moment between parents and children. It's going to be a teaching moment to explain this is why this thing looks this way. You weren't born this way, but eight days later it happened. And this is a sign that you are part of the covenant potential with Father Abraham. See, it's, it's what a teaching, teaching moment. Now, Moses' wife, Zipporah, didn't agree with this ritual. This is one of the big issues I have with the movie The Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston. Because Zipporah was a mess. And Zipporah wasn't with him on the mountain whenever God took him away right there at the end of the movie. She was already gone. She was out of there. Zipporah, <coughs> it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Okay, here's Moses. He's been called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He is headed that way. They, he's got two, two boys here. And it was evidently the woman's job to do the circumcision ritual. She didn't do it. And it says, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
Now, how important is is that? Okay, Moses out of the tribe of Levi. There wasn't a Levitical priesthood then, but it was going to be set up through Moses and through the tribe of Levi, and they did not comply with the instructions passed down from Abraham. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. I'm glad the kid was uh, probably fairly young when this happened. And threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you're a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. She didn't want anything to do with it. I think she thought it was barbaric. And she obviously didn't seem to be too interested in the covenant God made with Abraham. Uh, She later gets to go spend time with Daddy and Midian, etc. After they get out in the desert, Jethro, her father, comes to bring her and the kids to Moses. And it says, Moses ran up to Jethro and gave him a big hug, but didn't say there was any such greeting with his wife. So, And he later married an Ethiopian princess, which really sends people over the edge whenever they start thinking about it. But... uh, uh, let's say it sent who? His his sister, Miriam. You remember that? Miriam just went ballistic. Aaron went ballistic. And what happened? She got hit with leprosy. <laughs> so that's coming up in chapter 13, if I remember right. The laws of leprosy. Even under the law of the circumcision, in, even under the law, the circumcision of the heart was more important to the Lord than physical circumcision. Now, this is an important passage to note. Deuteronomy 10. Go ahead and turn there with me, if you would, because here is the the issue of circumcision was more about obedience to what the Lord had to say, not just the physical act, but the mental acceptance of it. Okay? Deuteronomy 10, 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. See, that's almost repeated Deuteronomy 6. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes that I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God, belong heaven, the highest heavens, the earth, and all that's in it. Yet your fathers, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Okay, this is a message of Moses coming to the people, basically saying you're God's chosen people, you're special people. So what is this conclusion? Circumcise then your heart. And stiffen your neck no more. The sermons of Moses found the book of Deuteronomy pretty well seemed to happen after the 40 years in the desert. There had been a whole lot of people lost out there in the desert. And he's saying, get your head screwed on straight, people. How many people died because they wouldn't look at the bronze serpent? How many people, uh, how many people uh, choked on the quail that came down out of heaven. How many people had done that? And he says, get your heart right. Now circumcision of the heart 
see, that's the removal of the foreskin, and the foreskin of the penis is not needed. So, it's basically removal of human viewpoint from your attitudes. The circumcision of the heart. There's some things we just don't need in this life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. We don't need any of that stuff. So part of that circumcision of the heart is getting rid of, of thought, speech, and actions that are unneeded in our life. So he says, and stiffen your neck no more. Remember all the comments? This is a stiff-necked people. Remember when they first came out and they got in trouble? God said, I'm going to kill them all. You remember that? And Moses stepped in as a mediator and interceded for them. Beautiful picture of the Lord as the mediator, intercessor, and all that. And he stepped in. Forty years later, fast forward, <laughs> Moses said, kill them all. <laughs> I love that. I mean, you're reading one in Moses's the perfect picture of Christ. <laughs> And the next time, he's the picture of Christ at the second advent. He wants God to wipe them all out and start all over again. <laughs> so he'd pretty well had it. He says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien. Look at this. This is found in Israel. God's chosen people who are to take care of each other. And people say, well, it's all about Israel. No, they, they were to outreach with, with what they had. Show your love for the alien because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, literally 70 souls in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Wasn't that a promise to Abraham? Your descendants shall be as the stars of the heavens. And here they are. A couple hundred years later, they've left Egypt. And here's a statement that says, God's already fulfilled that. He's already fulfilled it. Now, Israel was tested to circumcise their hearts. This is Moses. We're at about 1405 B.C. Let's fast forward to the time of Jeremiah in the time of the Babylonian captivity between 586 and 516. And he says in Jeremiah 4, If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me, and if you will put away your detested things from my presence. What, what's happened to Israel? Ceremonial uncleanness. All the stuff they're being warned about in the, in the law. And will not waver. Okay, don't just do it for show to get me off your back. Do it. And you shall swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness. Then the nations will bless themselves in him. And in him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground. Don't sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. 
and remove the foreskins of your heart. See that pops in there again? They are in they are in Babylon. You want to go back to this land? Okay? Get your get your head screwed on right again. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. They'd already got a taste of it, or they wouldn't be in Babylon. And burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So here he is, they're in Babylon, and the Lord's saying, get your head screwed on right. Circumcise your heart. Get all that human viewpoint out of your souls and come back and worship me. Now Joseph and Mary followed the law. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Interesting that this this little ritual of circumcision connected with the Abrahamic covenant comes right on through and then according to the law of Moses because it was said on the eighth day. See, with Abraham, the eighth day wasn't, wasn't spelled out as law. But with Moses, it's spelled out as law. Okay, Because with Abraham, he was 100 when it started. Okay, Isaac was uh, when Abraham Abraham wasn't born yet, but uh, Isaac uh, was circumcised shortly after after his birth, and so <clears throat> Joseph and Mary followed the law. The first century Jews recognized circumcision as having even higher necessity than following the Sabbath law. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord called them out on that too. He healed on the Sabbath, remember? And they got all over him. You healed on the Sabbath, he said. Don't you even circumcise newborns on the eighth day? On the Sabbath? So they viewed circumcision as a higher spiritual principle, if you will, than observing the Sabbath day. Circumcision was a serious topic of debate at the Jerusalem Council. Because the Jews were trying to bring it into the church. And so that's what Peter and Paul went face to face about. A big part of it. Peter had fallen prey to the, they called the circumcision party. They were trying to install all the Mosaic law into the church. And Paul said, you can't do that. And they went nose to nose on it. And they, uh, they finally agreed that the, the Gentiles that were now joining the church didn't have to be circumcised. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it, was a, it was a big topic, but even after the decision of the council, Paul circumcised Timothy, whose father was a Greek. So he was half Jew, he was half Greek, and there was a, an issue to remove the issue from future discussions. Because he talks about the fact that certain people snuck in unaware to spy out our liberty. In other words, they went into the latrine, they were standing there, and some of the Pharisees came in to check out and see if they were circumcised or not. Okay? And, and Paul said, I don't want to get into a situation like that because this is not about circumcision. This is about the Messiah. <laughs> and we've got the wrong topic of conversation. So he took Timothy and circumcised him. It wasn't on the eighth day, obviously. Because he was, he was a grown man, but he circumcised it. Because then it would not be a part of the future uh, dis discussions. There are a lot of principles to come out of that. Because Satan's a master of distraction. And he can, 
He can sideline a Christian in a heartbeat with a peripheral issue that doesn't really matter. And so learning what really matters is is important to the Christian life. Paul writes to the new male converts, I started to say convicts, but new male converts to stay as they are. 1 Corinthians 7.18, he says, if you're circumcised, fine. If you're not, stay that way. Okay, we're not going to make a big deal out of this. Because, you know, you get some guys coming into it and they want to join a church and you say, we're going to have to do this. And they're going to go on, what? Just like probably Abraham did, but they're not, <laughs> they're new believers at the be- at the earliest. And a lot of the things about legalisms, legalisms are usually presented before the object of the faith. You got to quit this, quit this, do this, do this, and and people turn off before they listen to the important stuff. So <clears throat> Paul fought for the importance of a new creation rather than the completion of a ritual. From Galatians 6:15, he says, "For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision." but a new creation. That's the important thing. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. At our spiritual birth, we have a circumcision not made with hands. But see, that's an interesting thing because circumcision reaches such levels of importance that um, in some cultures, they require women to be circumcised. And usually that renders them incapable of having an orgasm. All they're able to do is they can't enjoy what God created for enjoyment. They can't enjoy it because all they can do is have babies. Because they think that is the the holy part. So that is, you take circumcision and you start going equal treatment under the law. And the next thing you know, that's where it ends up. Muslims often time get involved in uh, female circumcision now at our spiritual birth we have this circumcision not made with hands Colossians 2 8 through 15 and I'm going to read that if you want to join me here at our spiritual birth we have this Colossians 2 8 see to it no one make takes you captive through philosophy an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Messiah. According to Messiah. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. See, this is part of the proof she used that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Okay? And in him you've been made complete. He is the head over all rule. And authority. Sounds like that makes him king of kings, doesn't it? And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You think Colossae is predominantly a Gentile church? Sounds like it. He says, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He's telling the church at Colossae, especially the Gentiles there, that it's not circumcision that gets you into the body of Christ. It's not circumcision that saves. What it is is your identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And then I like the, these verses. Let's put them in there because you can't not read them when you read this portion. Having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And the picture is this. We've all got a list of things that is a debt we owed. And the Lord took that list and nailed it to a cross. He said, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What a picture of the Lord on the cross. This public display, this is uh, uh, sometimes people take this passage and say that we as believers are going to get to bump a demon into the lake of fire. Uh, that's the only place in the Bible this might come from. And it doesn't really come from there. So anyway, uh, I hope we get to bump a demon, the one that's been bugging us the most. You know, that would be a lot of fun. That would be a little touch of revenge. Is that revenge or is that reward? That's kind of a questionable thing. But uh, anyway, that's... I know some of you have heard that taught. And I, I, when I first heard it, I thought, boy, that's cool. And I thought, where's that found? And I went, that didn't say that <laughs> at all. So anyway, now <clears throat> in verse 4, it says, Then she, the one who had given birth, shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. All right, so you got seven days and then 33 days. You add those together, you get 40 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. And if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days, 80 days. Now, I know we've got some symbolism, but what? <laughs> so... I gave up and I went to a commentary. <laughs> Kylan Delich. This is what they say. Kylan Delich is considered the classic Hebrew commentary of the Old Testament. It says, If she had given birth to a girl, she was be unclean two weeks and then to remain at home. The distinction between the seven or fourteen days of the separation for her infirmity and the 33 days of blood of, had a natural ground in the bodily secretions connected with childbirth. That's what they're saying. He says, which are stronger and have more blood in them the first week than the more watery discharge of the lachia alba, which may last as much as five weeks. So that the normal state may not be restored till about six weeks after the birth of the child. 
The prolongation of the period in connection with the birth of a girl was also founded upon the notion, which was very common in antiquity, that the bleeding and watery discharge continued longer after the birth of a girl than after the birth of a boy. Okay? So it pretty well is... The, the law is also practical. It's not going to go straighten out some medical, probably inconsistencies or unknown things at this time. It's just, I hate to say go with the flow, but that's kind of what it's called. <laughs> Going with the flow. And here are some of the references. Aristotle makes mention of it. Um, Hipp Hippocrates. The extension of the period to 40 and 80 days can only be accounted for from the significance of the numbers which we meet with repeatedly, especially the number 40. Okay. Now, 40 days is a reminder of the amount of time it rained on the earth after the flood started. Hmm. So it's a picture of the fact that God does judge disobedience. Patience after seeing the mountaintops as the flood was receding. This is, the, this is their frame of reference at the time Moses gave this. Their frame of reference is, okay, here is Noah in the ark. We have the, the account of it, and it stopped raining and everything. The ark's floating, and after it stopped raining, 40 days later, they started to see the top of the mountaintops. So it's a picture of time of testing. It's a picture of patience. It's a picture of a lot of things going, is this water ever going to go down, or are we going to be in this stupid boat for the rest of our lives? Part of the bargaining Abraham did for Sodom and Gomorrah. If there be 40 righteous, will you spare the city? It's also the age of Isaac when he married Rebekah. He was 40 years old. And the time Moses was on the mountain. That's a little more familiar to him. Okay? So 40 comes in there. And you know what I found for 80? Nothing. <laughs> So, this is one of those passages. Okay, what's this all about? Was this just simply <laughs> this simply about physical issues of childbirth at that point in time in history? And that, to me, looks like that's what it is. Okay? So, verse, verse 6. And when the days of her purification are completed for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway the tent of the meeting... A, one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. And this is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she can't afford a lamb... Then she shall take two turtle doves, two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So the burnt offering is a picture of the Father being satisfied. Okay, It's a picture of our salvation, picture of propitiation. That's what the burnt offering is all about. Okay, And she has fulfilled this, so the priest is given the okay that yes, she has fulfilled the time that she had to uh, set aside. And the priests are expected to offer the sacrifice as a mediator. Once again, they're supposed to be a representative of, of Jesus Christ. And notice that everyone can afford to make the sacrifices. Thus, it's a picture of the fact that everybody is welcome. 
to atonement for sin once again. So <clears throat> the uh, sin offering, it wasn't a sin to have a child. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's not where the sin is. But probably somewhere along the line, <laughs> there was some sin involved. <laughs> okay? In the, in the childbirth. Now, and it could have been any number of things. But anyway, I know it's not easy on you ladies for doing that. And uh, I applaud you. Uh, men are not strong enough <laughs> to go through it. And that's for sure. We we chicken out. So uh, anyway. All right. Let's pray. Father, it's been a good day once again because we've got to open up your word together and have this fellowship. And Father, just to see your your amazing plan and the, the details that you put into it that are designed to reveal who you are and remind us of your plan of the ages and um, what what you plan to do in the future. So, Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We pray you'll nourish our souls with it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.